0: conversation season three episode 10 we have got an awesome episode for you this week i'm joined by mr lee grove a fisheries biologist from fwc and we're going to be talking about the use of mussels to help clean a lake and improve their water quality this is a super innovative project and you guys are not going to want to miss this story coming at you right now i'm here with lee grove lee how are you
1: I'm doing great. How about yourself?
0: Doing excellent. First question is the same for everybody. Who is Lee Grove?
1: Hey, Travis. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm a fisheries biologist with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, FWC. I love the outdoors. I grew up spending a lot of time in it. I grew up kind of in the coast of Alabama, and I've been here in Florida for about six years now
0: coastal alabama mobile gulf shores like yeah
1: mobile alabama
0: okay so you were outside the jurisdiction of the mullet tossing at the floor of alabama
1: as a kid right yes yes I, yeah i grew up in the city mobile. <laughs> did
0: right. you and you grew up hunting and fishing up there
1: i did yeah spent a lot of time offshore um in the rivers and the delta and then then hunting in the, the surrounding woods
0: do you hunt small game do you hunt deer what'd you hunt mostly deer okay
1: a little bit of squirrel
0: uh, never duck hunted Mobile Bay?
1: I have once or twice. It's a little early and cold for me.
0: <laughs> early in the morning?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> smoking smoking as a true deer hunter. Um they don't like deer hunters don't usually like the effort that goes with waterfowling for some reason, even though I feel like they put a lot more effort in, it's just how you look at it, right? Right. Um and how long have you been with FWC?
1: About six years. Okay.
0: And I see that you're wearing an AU fishery shirt. Did you go to Auburn?
1: I did, actually. I got both my undergrad and graduate degrees from from Auburn.
0: I really wanted to make an Auburn joke right there, um, because I know we got a lot of Gator fans listening. But Auburn has a top-notch fishery school, right? World-class.
1: Absolutely. Uh, One of the the top programs in the country and in the world. Um, I was really blessed to be able to do all of my education there.
0: What do they call it? It's the Plains, right?
1: Yeah, this is the loveliest uh, loveliest town in the Plains.
0: Loveliest town in the Plains. And uh, I have to ask, since we're talking about Auburn, are you a big football fan?
1: I am, uh, especially when I was there at school. This was a huge Auburn Tiger fan for football. Now we got basketballs going pretty well for us, too. Um, also a big NFL fan. So, Oh, really? What's your team uh, in the NFL? The Saints. Big who, who did
0: Okay. So. Uh, Drew, Drew Brees guy.
1: Yeah, well, you know, we're right from right outside of uh, New Orleans, about two hours away. So even before the Drew Brees era, I was still a fan.
0: Oh, wow. Back when they were wearing bags over their heads and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the old The old saints. All right, we got right. to ask these three questions. Everybody gets the same three questions. The first one is, do you have strong feelings about pineapple on a pizza, Lee?
1: You know, I don't order it regularly, but I won't say that it really offends me either.
0: Okay. And that's... I'll say that's the acceptable answer. That's not the right answer, but it's an acceptable answer. Um, as long as you're not going out and seeking it out, I guess I'm, I'm okay. That's a compromise to me. <laughs> you uh, you said you're a fisherman. You still fish? Absolutely. What, what do you fish for these days?
1: So it's one of the things kind of growing up on the coast. Where That's cool about growing up where I grew up and being in Florida. You're so close to so many different, resources and types of fishing so for me i get asked that question a fair amount and it's a hard one to say so really it's for me it's just whatever's biting <laughs> so um i'm happy going offshore here i live down here in fort lauderdale and catching sailfish um during the spring stuff like that but also i'll shoot up to lake okeechobee during the summer and catch a bunch of bluegill i'm just as happy doing either one
0: you're so. you're an opportunistic fisherman
1: Absolutely. Wherever the hot bite is, that's where I'm going.
0: So so that said, what is your go to snack when you're going on a fishing trip?
1: Man, it used to be I used to get catch a lot of grief for this. Uh the Vienna sausages, you know, like the little canned sausages. But my fishing buddy kinda said he would mutiny if I continued to bring those on the boat. So now I think it's uh Cheez Its.
0: Okay. Cheez Its are good, but when you get when you get some bait on your hands, Cheez Its don't translate as good. You gotta like dump them out of the box then.
1: Yeah, but yeah, the Vienna sausage aren't good for the fade <laughs> fingers either. That's true, although maybe
0: it works the other way. You get some Vienna yeah. sausage juice on your lure, and it, it's, a, it's an additive.
1: Right. <laughs> uh,
0: last one of these is, do you have a favorite Little Debbie snack?
1: You know, I'm not a big sweets guy. Oh, my um, gosh. But that being said, if you put some homemade brownies in front of me, I could eat that whole you, thing. You'd
0: hammer some brownies?
1: Oh, I love brownies.
0: All right, so what led... To you becoming a fisheries biologist?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of where I grew up. And I went fishing with my grandfather, my uncles, my father, all the time growing up, doing just spending a lot, as much time on the water as possible. And that kind of led to my interest in just aquatic life in general. And then found that when I was at school and really developed a passion for it. So now I'm doing it as a career.
0: And did you come to work for the agency right out of school? Have you been doing FWC your entire career?
1: No, so I did. I actually had a career working in the insurance field uh, originally, and then decided that that wasn't really the route that I wanted to go. And then went back to school and got my undergrad, and then a master's degree in fisheries. Um, and that that started about that about ten years ago, probably started down that path, and now now I find myself here.
0: Awesome. And you are—I think you mentioned you're in Fort Lauderdale. I am. So you cover as a fisher. What's a fisheries biologist do? You know, you're a regional fisheries biologist. Is that the right term?
1: Correct. Yeah. Um, so regional freshwater fisheries biologist. So I don't work with any of the estuarine species or saltwater species. Um, so any freshwater, basically, uh, from Martin County, Okeechobee County, across to to Naples and down. So call your county and down and we don't do a lot in the keys.
0: What, what does that entail? Like, like from a, from from a, a, give me like a day in the life. Like what, what is that? What do you do?
1: We do a lot of monitoring um, where we go out and we look at the different fish populations and our key resources. So Lake Okeechobee, Lake Trafford, Lake Osborne, Lake Ida, Blue Lagoon down in Miami, um, the water conservation areas, and then different canals all through South Florida. Um, Then we use that data to kind of evaluate what's going on in those fisheries and then make management decisions like if it needs some habitat work or if it needs to be stocked, stuff like that. We also work with uh, water management districts on flows and then habitat restoration projects. We work with some local universities on some of that same stuff. anything that really has to do with freshwater fish and particularly sport fish in freshwater you'll find us there
0: so you mentioned Lake Trafford that's a thing that we are going to talk about uh today give me give me kind of an overview of where is Lake Trafford what is Lake Trafford like give me the specs on it
1: yeah, Lake Trafford is about 25 miles inland between Naples and Fort Myers over on the west coast. Uh, it's about a 1,500 acre lake. Um, it's got great bass fishing. It's probably one of our best crappie fisheries in the state. Uh, it depends on who you talk to in FWC. Everybody's got their favorite lake in their region that they say is the best, but I would say that Lake Trafford's probably the, the best crappie fishery in the state and it'll open some, somebody will hear this working for FWC and have some nice conversations for us. Later.
0: Well, well, and unfortunately only the fisheries biologists for FWC are going to know what you're talking about because no one else calls them crappie. We all call them specs. That's right. And it's a big controversial, <laughs> that's a big controversial subject that Alan Martin and I uh, argued about quite a bit on this podcast at one point. Um, give me some history of the lake. Cause I know, I know the lake, I know the lake through alligator honey it's it's it's, mm-hmm. it's a really popular alligator lake but give me the history of kind of the lake like the condition it's in or maybe the condition it was in and how it's in the condition it is
1: now lake trafford historically has been an excellent bass and crappie lake uh, starting sometime back in like the late 80s early 90s the whole lake got inundated with hydrilla and that led to the accumulation of organic sediment and muck and then from that, poor water quality and the frequent fish kills. In fact, there was, in 2004, There's a massive fish kill. And when we go in and do our electrofishing surveys, which that's a technique that we use on a boat that has a generator that runs current through the water that temporarily stuns the fish, and then we can net the fish, put it in a live well on the boat, get the information we need from the fish, and then release the fish unharmed back into the wild. So during those surveys, we actually only collected like I think, like three bass over seven years. So, oh the bass, yeah, the bass population was almost completely gone in the lake. So, since the lake was in such rough shape, a task force was put together that focused on restoring the lake. So, doing some monitoring, removal of muck, and then restoring the lake back to its original condition. After that, uh, they got a project going that removed with South Florida Water Management District and the Corps and some other folks that removed about six million cubic yards a month from the lake. And then we came back in and restocked the lake with native sport fish and then started doing habitat work, planting plants, that sort of thing to work on that restoration. Uh, We saw some really good return. Uh, Bluegill, crappie, uh, largemouth bass actually rebounded really well. So everything was going really well. We saw a significant uh, increases in largemouth bass, red ear, bluegill, and crappie populations. However, uh, Hurricane Irma was really rough on the lake. That really set us back. So we, we were getting the native plants reestablished. Eelgrass came back in the lake following a drought. And then Hurricane Irma really removed a lot of plants and destroyed a lot of habitat in the lake. And then following that storm, where well, you didn't have the plants kind of locking up that loose sediment and using up some of the nutrients that were entering the lake, then we started to have the water quality issues again. And we had actually had a blue green algae kill in the lake in the winter of 2018.
0: So can I ask some follow-up questions on all this? Sure. When it, when it, when all the hydrilla got loose in there, I say got loose, that's Travis's term. Um, and you said you had a massive muck accumulation, was that just from the hydrilla itself like like growing dying growing dying growing dying like it was a almost right. a natural occurring for an I- invasive species
1: yeah so it just got to the point where the plants filled up i mean like literally filled the entire lake like it was there were airboat cut trip or airboat trails cut through the middle of the lake so as those plants grow and die and grow and die and there's just that many plants in the lake it deposited a lot of that organic material on the bottom and it got really thick
0: and then, um, that w- that was interesting to me because I, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by the invasive plant management stuff. And then you talked about after Irma came through, there was nothing to hold the sediment or the muck. Is that turbidity? Is that what we're talking about there? Is that, is that the term for that?
1: Right. So. What a lot of that shoreline vegetation does is there's there's a lot of organic material just as plants naturally die and decay. And that's around those shorelines, kind of low spots where like kind of marshy areas. And a lot of those that organic material that's just decaying plants and or leaves, that sort of thing, gets locked up by cattails, kissimmee grass, all that kind of stuff. Just the roots hold it in place. And when those plants aren't there and then you get wave energy, it suspends that loose organic material into the water column which leads to turbidity brown water and also releases those nutrients into the water column which leads to algae blooms
0: P- plus it inhibits growth right just from blocking sunlight for future exactly
1: programs. exactly
0: so we're going to we're going to talk about mussels. this is the first interview we've done about a shellfish uh <laughs> tell me how the idea to put mussels into lake trafford came about
1: Yeah, it's a it's an odd, definitely an odd topic for a a guy who works with sport fish. Like, so I'm going to improve the largemouth bass fishing with by stocking mussels, right? That's an odd idea. Um, So, following Hurricane Irma, um, we were me and a bunch of people off the team were sampling on the lake, and conditions were particularly bad. Water quality or water clarity was really bad. Uh, there were no no plants, electrofishing wasn't very good. And as we're riding back, we're all talking, it's like, man, this is the worst we've seen the lake look since basically before the section, suction dreads, because everything was going great up till that point. And it's like, what do we do about this? It's, we have this that chicken and the egg kind of problem, right? So, but you're talking about light penetration. So that's important for growing plants. It's like, well, we need more plants in the lake to be able to use, lock up some of that flocculent debris and also use some of the nutrients to keep the water clear so we can grow more plants. But the plants won't grow because the water's so turbid, we can't get any light in the lake. So it's like, how do we fix this problem? How do we jumpstart the lake? And then you started thinking about, you know, kind of threw out that idea of like, the, the zebra mussels up in uh, the Northeast and the Great Lakes. you not say that's what our goal is here. We're definitely not gonna stock zebra mussels, but it's the mussel itself and our native mussels are filters, right? So they're a natural filter. And then when we would have done, two things would have happened to the native mussel population in in Lake Trafford. One, they need oxygen to survive, just like everything else. And if you get that mass accumulation of organic material and muck, that leads to anoxic conditions, which will kill mussels. So that would have been detrimental for the the muscle population and then when we did the suction dredge project any native muscles or any muscles that would have been in the sediment would have been sucked up and moved to, to the disposal site so we really have two things we can do here one we can restore the native muscle population back to the way it was before uh, the suction dredge and before the invasive plant problems and while we're doing that what if we can use our hatchery system produce enough of them That we can have some positive effects on water clarity and water quality. So, doing that, we produce enough of them to stock at a high enough density because they'll eat some of the, they'll use up a bunch of the phosphorus and nitrogen that's available in the water column. They'll also take and eat some of those suspended solids as well.
0: So, so you guys are driving around and you say, hey, let's use mussels, kind of like they kind of like zebra mussels got out of control, but you you use it as a jumping off point. And you said, well, if we took native mussels and repopulated them in this lake to help fix this lake. Right. How does that go from an idea while y'all are driving back from a sampling trip to becoming a reality?
1: Yeah. So the first thing was um, one of our uh, my coworkers that works at our hatchery has a background in shellfish. And I was sitting there talking to her one day and I was like, hey, we had this idea for Lake Trafford about using some mussels the same as I think they're doing off in the saltwater environment with oysters. I was like, is that something you think that we could do here at our hatchery? And she was basically like, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I I think we can make that happen. But like anything else, it takes money. Um, And our budgets are limited, and we didn't have the available funds. So that's where the Fish and Wildlife Foundation came in through their, their bear tag grant, we applied for a grant with proposal with our ideas and applied for a grant that then they funded and we were able to hire another muscle biologist to help us with develop the propagation techniques and produce the muscles that we need for the project.
0: So, so basically you, you guys wrote a prospectus, submitted it for the grant from the Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida, which is the nonprofit kind of entity for FWC. And they said, "Yeah, this seems like a, a valid project. We will fund this project."
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And I think you mentioned that's money that came from purchase of the bear tags. Correct. The the concern, I think it's conserve wildlife. There's a bear tag. They just came out with a new one. We'll talk about that at the oh. end. But they just came out with a new one. So, what makes this so innovative?
1: So it's it's a new concept. I think they've been doing it in, with oysters. They have been doing it with oysters in the, the marine environments, but. Round about this time when this whole thing got started out, nobody had ever really tried to use, produce enough mussels to affect water quality. Um, since we started this and about the same time, Pennsylvania started it and then a group in D.C. also started it. Okay. So independently, we all kind of came with the same same idea at the same time. The propagate propagating mussels to stock back into the wild isn't necessarily new, what it's what it's been used for in the past is uh the endemic muscle species that we have like up in the panhandle and in some other areas where those those species are, are threatened or imperiled so it's kind of keeping those populations going but this is like the first definitely the first time in florida and there's only two other places that i know of that are trying to produce enough of them to have effects on water quality
0: so, so describe and you're not a muscle scientist you're, you're a fisheries biologist but describe yeah. to me I'm just going to ask it this way. The coolness of how you get muscles to reproduce and how that process works with fish and everything else. Cause this is not how oysters work. This is not how clams work. Like,
1: Right. So another thing that makes it innovative is this is the, the species that we're using are the first time this species has ever been cultured before. So, but every muscle is a little bit different and they have really interesting reproductive physiology. So, some of the really interesting mussels will actually create a lure that looks like a fish. And what that does is it holds the little glochidia, so that's their their offspring. It looks just, If you look at it, you can only see them under a microscope, and it looks just like a tiny little muscle. So what they'll do, what their goal is, is to then transplant those glochidia onto the gills of a fish. So freshwater mussels really depend on a host fish, whereas a lot of your clams and oysters and marine species, they broadcast their offspring into the water column that then settle out on substrate later and grow. So freshwater freshwater mussels require a host, and that those glochidia have to be deposited on the gills. So what'll happen is the ones that create a lure it looks like a little fish, so it'll get something like a bass or like a bluegill that wants to eat that little fish, and when it bites it, the glochidia are released, and then they attach to the gills. But for the, the mussel that we're using, they actually have a little bit different technique. They actually use what's called like a mu- uh, a mucus net. So, and we're using bluegill. That's their host, the host species that, that works for the mussels we're doing with. And they'll just put out this net that's got all the little glochidia on it. And then the bluegill will then swim into the net. And then the glochidia or uh, the fish is infected with the glochidia that way.
0: You say infected. It's not a bad thing, right? Like this is how it works in nature
1: right yes um so it is it is a parasite but it doesn't harm harm the fish so it'll ride the gills for a little bit until it develops enough to that it can then fall off and then deposit itself in the sediment. one of the interesting things that we found throughout this process is actually the bluegill actually end up getting immune to the to the glochidia to the parasitic uh, offspring from the muscles they can only be infected one time so every time that we go to produce more mussels we have to find we have to get naive bluegill for the
0: trials (laughs) i'm gonna say that's the first time we've ever heard the term naive bluegill on the podcast and i love it i think that'd be a great band name (laughs) um the naive bluegill are playing tonight at the house of blues how did you (laughs) this is the coolest thing ever so you you get these fish to swim you don't get them to swim through it they swim through it naturally because they it's just what fish Mm do it attaches to their gills the muscles grow to a point, on their gills fall off. No harm to the fish, and now you've got muscle spread, almost like a. To put it into my backyard terms, almost like a beggar weed or a caesar, like it, right? It's almost yeah. like a seed that sticks to them.
1: Pretty similar, yeah. Um, and then we'll once they fall off the fish in the tank. So we're doing it in tanks. So we'll put the fish in the tank with the muscle, and that's the way the fish gets infected. And then those when those glycidia fall off, we then collect them put them in little mesh bags and then we move them to the ponds that have a lot of nutrients and stuff like that because it's an culture facility and then they grow up in the ponds until they're ready to go into the lake
0: and let's talk about where you're doing this at
1: oh yeah it's the florida bass conservation center up there in, in Richland. it's an amazing facility where they're able to do all kinds of great things with sport fish and catfish and fish that are stocked around the state uh, and now we've added on a little bit to it now we've got a a muscle section going on at the hatchery. Uh,
0: When my kids were young, they used to do a fishing tournament there annually for like the kids in the area. And we would go out and fish at the Rich Loam Hatchery because it's probably an hour and 15 minutes from the house. And they'd let you fish and keep the catfish out of the little stock ponds and stuff. And it was it was an awesome facility, but you could also do tours of it and everything else. I don't know if they still do that. I'm sure they do tours at some time. So check FWC's website and look into the Rich Loam Fish Hatchery. It's a very, very cool place.
1: They're absolutely still doing tours and the public is welcome to come check it out. And you should, It's it's amazing.
0: And it's sitting in the middle of a WMA. Like in the middle of freaking nowhere. Yeah. Uh, so, how did you guys figure out which species to use?
1: Yeah. So we're using the first species that we started on. We're using the paper pond shell. We selected that species one because it's one of the most common mussels throughout the state of Florida. Two it grows fast relative to other muscle species so we're able to produce them to a size where we can put them in the lake quicker also they're reproducing for a larger proportion of the year compared to some other other muscle species
0: yeah so i don't know eating. i don't know what the right term is but like so they're they're able to have muscle offspring the technical term would
1: be gravid okay so, so they're, they're gravid
0: like a snake is gravid like a reptile right so yeah. they're gravid longer
1: yes they're they're gravid for a longer part of the year than most of the other muscle species.
0: How how are you guys gonna determine because we haven't put muscles into Traffords yet? Like we're the, we're in the the we need to grow some muscles part of this program, right?
1: Right. So we're very much in the development new new early on stages of this project. We have put muscles in the leg. So we need to before we start putting a lot of muscles in the leg, we need to make sure that those muscles will survive. So what we've been doing is some of our our uh, broodstock, mussel broodstock, we put some of those in the lake that we're thinking about, in sites we're thinking about stocking to make sure that if we put more mussels in the lake that they're actually going to survive there. And really, we just started that a couple months ago, and the mussels are doing great. So it looks like that part of the project is a go. If we put mussels in the lake, they should live fine. Before we're able to actually put mussels in the lake in any quantity, we're going to need to figure out a couple things So, just because we're able to to grow a few doesn't mean that they're the best best muscle to put in right so the way things work the, the easiest muscle to produce is going to probably have the poor poorest filtration rates so and then a then a muscle that's easy for us to produce or relatively difficult for us to produce will have much better filtration rates. so one thing we got to do is we have to look at so ease of propagation how many can we produce? How much effort does it take? We need to consider the filtration rates of the different species and then look at that balance between who's the best filter and how many can we produce to meet our goals. And that's how we'll select which muscle go in, or probably a different variety of muscles to put back the that natural muscle community the way it was. Cause every system has multiple different species of muscles. It's not usually just one species.
0: So, so that leads to, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a complex process that you're going to have to go, obviously you made a educated guess. I say you, the agency made an edu- educated guess and said, we're going to start with the paper pond muscle because that, that takes a couple of boxes. We think it's a good enough filter, but also will propagate rapidly enough.
1: Yeah. So it's, well, one, we were able to tell, so it's, since it's grabbing for so much of the year we're able to learn that process because it's never been done before with that species. So we're starting completely from scratch. So if you only, that muscle's only grabbed for like a month, then you only have a month to try to figure out how to, how to produce that muscle. And then you got to wait till next year. So with this one, it's gravid for, I think like 10 months out of the year. So for most of the year, you're able to try different techniques. And because of that, when we first started this, we tried the techniques that had been done with other muscles some of the endemic species, and they didn't work for this muscle. So there were a bunch of different things that we tried in order to find something that worked. And that's gonna be true for all these muscles.
0: And because these are native muscles, you're still being careful with your, your approach in it, but, but it's not the same as introducing a biological control or something would be where you have to go through a, locking it in a room, right? For a long period of time to see other effects. You already kind of know that these muscles exist on the landscape.
1: Right, so we're making sure that any muscles that we put in the lake are historically part of that ecosystem. So, to do that, we've got our, our muscle group out of uh, Pensacola who are coming down. They do all the muscle sampling throughout the state. They're involved in the project, and they're, so they're looking at the muscle communities in the surrounding area and around the lake, and then also looking, looking through the dirt from the disposal site to see which muscles were in the lake before the suction dredge, too. So, we know that we're using muscles that should be in that lake and part of that ecosystem.
0: Gotcha. So, how are you going to figure out how many mussels you're going to put in the lake?
1: That'll have to do with the filtration rate, right? Okay. So, we're one of our other uh, partners on the project is Collier County Pollution. So, they collect all the environmental data, phosphorus loading, nitrogen loading, all that, um, and I, they collect all the phosphorus and nitrogen data uh, for the lake. And then there's there's a budget for that. So, mm-hmm. we'll then calculate in order to have the desired effect based on the filtration rates of the mussels, then how many of those mussels we need to stock in the lake in order to get our desired results. How
0: long before we start seeing massive stocking of mussels in Lake Trafford? We're
1: probably years away from that. So right now we've had success propagating the paper pond shell mussel. So we can spawn that mussel. We can produce juveniles. Currently, we're working on the grow out for that so after you produce them you still got to grow them up to a size where you can actually put them in the lake and that's oftentimes a lot more complicated than it sounds it's not as simple as just growing them them in the water they'll grow up then we put them somewhere else there's a process to that as well and then we're also so now that we're working on that we've moved on to a new species which is the Florida spike and We'll work on the same thing with that. We've got to figure out how to propagate it, and then we've got to figure out how to grow it out. So after we figure out how to grow a couple of these mussels and which ones we can grow, which ones we can't grow, and in the meantime, we'll start looking at the different filtration rates for each of these species and then select which mussels or combination of mussels are going to go in.
0: You're starting to click for me too now by using the paper pond as your, as your kind of, uh, I'll say I'll say, first, I know it wasn't your first, but as kind of your first test, you also learned a lot about muscle propagation that can then be applied probably to some of the other species that may be better filters or or, or whatever.
1: Right, exactly. Gotcha. So, I'm starting to figure out so how that, you
0: scientists work.
1: <laughs> so the same thing with how we're going to use the information we learned about the paper pond shell that we're applying to the, the Florida spike. Has the same implication for other mussel species throughout the state too right so up in the panhandle area we have a lot of imperiled endemic species up there so what we learn for this project that's you know focused on growing mussels to restore lake trafford also has implications to that process and then other lakes as well throughout the state that have you know water quality water clarity is a big problem for a lot of our our lakes and then if this works and it's accessible here, we can then use the same techniques for missile populations around the state, water retention ponds, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it's a, It becomes a scalable solution or, or tool in the tool belt for fixing water quality.
1: Exactly. It's not the end-all be-all, but it's part of a holistic approach to ecosystem restoration. I- you have to have all the pieces working together. So.
0: I think anyone listening to this that's listened to us for long knows that there's not a magic bullet out there. It's going to take a whole bunch of things to get the giant concrete wheel moving. What is? Where can people go learn more about this project?
1: So uh, for more information, you can contact our regional office here in the South region. Um, call our hatchery that's producing the, the mussels or go to myfwc.com.
0: And then something that the Fish and Wildlife Foundation asked us to do. Was we want to we wanted to pitch for the the bear the bear tag, which is right. is it's the conserve wildlife tag. They just did a new one, which I don't know if you've seen it yet, Lee, but it's got a a sna- uh, not a snail kite, uh, ever or swallowtail kite, a big old black bear. It's got palmettas. It's got swan. It's really a cool tag.
1: Yeah, those are awesome.
0: Um, and so the proceeds from that go to fund non-game we have a lot of hunters of fishermen and I, I can hear them raising their hackles a little bit and say well what about that and i'm like yeah but that these are the kind of projects that goes that benefit all wildlife in the state so um check out the bear tag we'll put a link to that in the show notes and then um for more on freshwater fisheries where can they find more information on that
1: so that's going to be back to myfjc.com and then they'll have a link that you can follow click on the fw or the fwc freshwater fisheries link and that'll take you to all of our state information there um they can also check us out at fish on instagram at fish real florida
0: awesome lee thank you so much i i know uh how hard you guys work on this stuff and uh it's so refreshing to see you guys chasing i know you i know you work really hard on the day to day, but also chasing some innovative ideas that make for better long-term solutions for the resource for all of us to enjoy. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you giving us some time. No
1: problem. Anytime. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much to Lee Grove for being so generous with his time, telling us his story and talking about the Lake Trafford Muscle Project. And also thank you to Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida for supporting this project, again, through the bear license plate. Really cool way to get funds into the right hands, similar to what we talked about a few weeks ago with Jovan McNeil, which is funded through the deer license plate. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hope everybody enjoyed this conversation. Y'all have a great week.